Hey there guys, welcome back. Just wanted to come to you today. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do a couple back-to-back here. Uh, just put one audio podcast out just a little bit ago there, a uh, <clears throat> day or two ago. And we're going to get this one out today. I uh, was just doing a little bit of reading. I was on the Facebook, as I like to call it. Uh, makes me sound a little older. Uh, but I was on Facebook and... I saw an advertisement for something, and I thought this might be a valid point for people. This might be helpful for those of you who don't enjoy working on your own vehicle. And for those who do, uh, either way, I'm sure by now you realize if you've popped the hood of a car open lately, especially on these newer vehicles, they are essentially computers on wheels. It's not like it used to be. You don't get a tune-up in a vehicle anymore. I listened to a show podcast that I enjoy listening to called Agco Auto. Uh, It's essentially Louis Altazan is the company owner, and it's a podcast for his shop. So he's the president. He's retired now, but he was the general manager owner, and he has a man on there, uh, Brian Terry, that is um, that is his head mechanic or uh, lead diagnostic tech that's now the general manager. Now, I like listening to their show because when they talk about things, it gives you a real bit of perspective into how things actually work. You know, a lot of people back in the day, if you had, a say, a Volkswagen Beetle, they would have issues. You'd have to readjust the the valves, you know, make sure that the valves were adjusted properly. You might have to replace points on your ignition. You might have to change the coils, the wires, the plugs. All those things had to be checked up on. And when things started wearing out, when spark plugs that were copper back in the day, when they would get worn, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 miles, it's time to replace those plugs. And that you would know it's time to replace the plugs because the vehicle would start acting funny. It wouldn't idle very well, wouldn't run well, wouldn't have much performance. It'd get poor fuel mileage. So what would happen invariably is people would bring their car into the shop and say, hey, I need a tune-up. Well, what they would do back then is they would throw some new points on the vehicle, maybe some new spark plugs, new wires, a new distributor cap, and the car's great. It's running fine. You know, carburetor is adjusted. Everything seems to be working well. But now if you take your car to a shop and say, I want a tune-up, hopefully that shop is going to say, okay, well, there's no such thing as a tune-up anymore. A vehicle is going to run like it's always run. If you run the car to the point where the spark plugs start wearing out, the gap is too wide, something happens in that car that a lot of people don't know about. And this is something I think is kind of interesting. For example, the car I drive is a an Audi. It's a 2008 Audi A4. And it is a newer design of engine. The engine is a 2-liter turbo. It's an overhead valve engine, so the, the camshafts are on top of the cylinder head. And you have a timing belt that keeps the crankshaft and camshaft in time with each other. Now, as those valves open and close... <coughs> As the valves open and close, they are taking up the same space that the piston takes up. Every engine anymore essentially is an interference engine. If you lose a timing belt or a timing chain, 
most likely you're going to ruin your engine. I believe on my old GTI and probably on this Audi as well, if your timing belt breaks, what's going to happen is you're going to have an intake valve is going to hit the head of the piston. You're going to have a collision between the two and essentially you're going to be buying a new vehicle, uh, a new engine for your vehicle. If, uh, if you're lucky, then you might just have to replace all the intake valves if you didn't do damage to the pistons, but it's still probably $2,000 to do that work. So I say all that to say uh, one of the things that, that I noticed on this Facebook ad, and this is the reason why I want to come to you today, is because they had a what they call a dongle. So this is a little Bluetooth device that you connect to your phone. It plugs into your OBD2, your onboard diagnostics port. They call it an OBD2. The older design, OBD1, I think was back around 96, um, back in the earlier 90s, you used to have a uh, an O2 sensor on those vehicles. Now you have two O2 sensors. So what you'll have is you will have an O2 sensor before what they call your catalytic converter, and you'll have one after. Now, the one before your catalytic converter is looking for oxygen in the exhaust. So O2, it's looking for oxygen. It's trying to see how much oxygen is unburned. Uh, it's, it's still being left in the engine. If your engine is running properly, you shouldn't be seeing oxygen go through. You should have a good, uh, I believe it's about 14 to 1. Your stoichiometric uh, ratio should be about 14 to 1. Your air to fuel, rather, for gasoline. And if that mixture is correct, then your O2 sensor should be reading a normal reading. You won't have a, uh, much oxygen at all in your exhaust. The second O2 sensor, what it's going to do is it's going to check to see what the difference is between the exhaust gases before and after the catalytic converter. Now what this advertisement is trying to tell you to do is buy their device and it will tell you how to fix your own car. And that sounds like a great idea. I know a lot of people would love that. You know, the, the people who maybe don't work on their own cars, don't know much about vehicles, they like the idea of being able to say, well, the mechanic was going to charge me $1,500, but I plugged this device into my car and I found out it was just an O2 sensor and I replaced it, or I had them replace it. Here's the problem with this, and I left a note on there, a pretty sizable paragraph, paragraph and a half, but they'll probably delete it anyway. But here's the reason why I wanted to make this little episode here today. There is no device that you are going to plug into your car that's going to tell you what to replace on your car. There is none. There's no device. When you work on a vehicle, especially if you're a mechanic, now I am a mechanic, I'm not a certified mechanic, but I do most of the work on my vehicle on my own. Brakes, exhaust, uh, you know, I, I just keep an eye on everything. I keep an eye on the there's a part on my car that can actually go bad pretty often. It's a intake cam follower. Since my car has direct injection, I have a high pressure fuel pump on top of the engine. And that little piston that runs on the intake cam, if it gets worn, you can do damage to not only that high pressure fuel pump, which is about four or $500, but also to the camshaft. And now you're talking 
hundreds, if not a thousand dollars or more to fix. So I will say I am a bit of a mechanic. And I can assure you that no matter where you take your car, even if they plug in a two or three or four thousand dollar snap-on scan tool or a tech two or whatever device you're using, no device is going to tell you what to replace. The only thing that device will do is it will read codes. And this little device that you might get, it might tell you what the check engine codes are for the powertrain for your engine. But it might not be able to tell you about your, uh, your body control module. It might not be able to tell you about the windows in your car and the things, the devices inside the car. There are so many computers on vehicles now, it's not like we thought it would be. Now you have a module that controls your heated seats. You'll have a module that controls your heated wind uh, 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 steering wheel. You'll have a module to control your windows, a module to control your, your hatch on the back of the vehicle. There might be 40 or 50 different computers on these cars that are all talking to each other for everything to work properly. And I've heard of people saying, well, my car battery just goes dead very quickly. I can't leave it for a week without it going dead. Well, one thing, and I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here, but one thing you have to remember is because all of these computers are on the car, they're all talking to one another. And if you don't lock your car, most vehicles, when you lock your car, shortly after you lock it and leave it, it will go into kind of like a standby mode, a low, a low power standby mode. But for those people who leave the car in their garage, they might leave the car unlocked, those computer modules may never shut down completely. They will stay on, they'll stay active, alarm systems might stay on, so you're pulling power all the time. Even when you have the car locked and you leave and the uh, alarm system is on, it's still pulling a little bit of power. But it's nothing like will be whenever you leave the uh, vehicle, leave the key in the vehicle, leave the key turned backwards, or you just leave the car unlocked and the security system isn't armed. Now, a good mechanic is going to be one who, if you take the car to them and you say, this car needs a tune-up, they're going to say, okay, well, first off, um, what is your car doing that you don't want it to do? Or what is your car not doing that you do want it to do? And you might say, well, the car has a noise. The car might be making a noise. Maybe it's not idling correctly. Maybe it's not starting. Maybe it's not cranking. There are all sorts of issues that we can have with our vehicles. And the thing that we have to remember is when we talk to a mechanic, just like anybody else, if we talk to a doctor or if we talk to anyone who is specialized in any field, we need to remember that maybe the things that they uh, think are important are things we would never think of. So for example, if you take your car to the shop and you say, the car is not starting. Well, to you that might make sense, but to the shop owner or to the mechanic that's going to work on your car, that might make no sense to them at all. What do you mean by the car's not starting? Is it, is it when you turn the key, you hear a click, but the starter doesn't turn over? Is it that the car turns over, but it doesn't start? Is it that the car starts, but it shuts off shortly thereafter? You know, just in those three things, you could have a lot of different issues. So for example, if the Bendix in your starter is out, it won't push forward and connect with, uh, 
it won't connect with your transmission to turn the car over. It won't uh, engage, essentially. So the Bendix is what, when you turn the key, it makes that starter pop out and turn uh, the flywheel so that the car can start. You might have a dead battery, and because of that, you don't have enough power to engage that Bendix. You might have an issue with your immobilizer system. So let's say your car, uh, maybe the battery in your key fob went dead. Some key fobs have to send an electrical impulse to the car's ignition system. That's how they make sure that nobody is stealing your vehicle. So maybe your car starts, but you'll see a light blinking on the dash and the car's engine will shut off shortly after you got it started. So there are all sorts of issues that you have. So if you have a problem with, like I said, a car not starting, you go in and you say, well, the car won't start. You need to let them know when it won't start, what it's not doing. So, hey, you know, early in the morning when it's cold, my car doesn't start. It cranks and cranks and cranks, but it won't start. Um, okay, now that gives them somewhere to look. Do you not have fuel pressure? You might not. You might have fuel pressure, but not adequate fuel pressure. Your fuel pump in the tank, your uh, your lift pump might not be working. You might have an issue with a crank sensor not picking up or a camshaft sensor. There are all sorts of issues that can come uh, about from these newer vehicles. And all of these electronic devices need to work. There used to be a time where maybe you had a Lincoln Town Car and hey, the one of the things I remember growing up, we used, we used to have this old Lincoln that when you would press a button, the antenna on the car would go up and down. It was really cool. But sooner or later, those things wear out. Now, back then, if it doesn't go up or down, it's not a big deal. You get it stuck up, uh, you power it up, you get it extended, and you leave it alone. It'll be okay. It'll work. But I heard a story of a Honda. I want to say it was either an Accord or maybe a Civic where the head unit in the car, which is the radio in their vehicle, quit working. Because the radio quit working, the car would not run. You couldn't start the car. Literally, it will not start up. It would not run. It won't crank nothing. And the reason is, if you imagine all of these, we'll just say it's 50 computers, although it could be more than that. Let's say you have 50 computer modules in this vehicle. If you had every module running wires, power wires, and relay wires, all different things, to the fuse panel and to other uh, things like the body control module, you would have wire just as thick around as your wrist going to and from places. So what these cars are using now is a CAN bus system. It's essentially like a computer. So you have essentially like a Cat5 cable that connects your head unit and these different devices to the car. Well, it's kind of like a Christmas tree. If you have lights around a Christmas tree and one bulb goes out, on those older lights, you lost all of the bulbs on the other side of, of that you know, defective bulb. At that point, it'd be easy. You just follow that wire back and you find the place where the bulb was burnt out, you replace it, you're good to go. But now with these computers, you have to know where the power comes from and where it goes to. And you might have to look up in service data, or you might have to look up a schematic to see where the power comes from and follow these things. So working on a car is not just plugging in a computer and letting it tell you what to fix. And another thing you might want to remember too, and I'm learning all of this. This is something I really enjoy listening to. One thing that we all need to remember 
is that the parts that you're buying today are not the same quality parts that we used to get. I've bought parts before for my car that I thought were great. I've put them on the car and they were just junk. And you think, well, I did that, I fixed that, so that couldn't be the problem, it must be something else. Come to find out later on that the part that I replaced was no good. It was new. But what we need to forget is the fact that new doesn't always mean that it works and that it's good. Some mechanic shops will have a known working part that they will use to make sure that the new part that they are putting on is good, as good or better than what they're replacing it with. So for an example, let's say you bring a car into the shop and it's a newer car and you have a code that is being read on your vehicle. So it's a, you know, I'm just making up a number. So let's say it's a P3, uh, P0301. So what that code might indicate is that you have a miss on cylinder one. It's a, uh, it's just a random misfire on cylinder one. Now you could have all sorts of reasons as to why that car has a misfire. You could have a bad spark plug. You could have a bad coil pack on top of the spark plug. If it's an older car, you might have a bad wire, a bad distributor plug. You could have a bad injector. There are so many different things that could cause a sporadic, random misfire on one cylinder. But what you could do if you're a bit of a shade tree mechanic and you enjoy fiddling with things is you could move the spark plug from that cylinder from, we'll say from cylinder one, if it's a V6, maybe move it from one to three and move spark plug three to spark plug one. Then if you want to, you could change the coil pack from one to, we'll say we'll move that to five and five to one. And then maybe we'll change the injector and we'll move the injector from hole one to hole two and two to one. So if you write all those things down now, whenever you go and drive the car, you look and see if that misfire moved. If it did, you can see which cylinder it moved to. And now you know essentially what part was the issue. That's a nice way to use parts that you know are working to help you diagnose and find something that's not. Like I said, you need to make sure that you keep track of which parts you sent where. And also need to remember that, uh, as I said, cars are built today. I haven't really said this yet, but cars today are built to shield you from, um, from knowing what's going on. By that I mean an older car... When the spark plug got worn, the wires had a, uh, you know, a bad connection in them. When you could open the hood of your car and you would see a spark jumping from your spark plug wire to the head of the engine, the insulation had just, you know, fallen apart on that uh, spark plug wire. Then you could go in, you could change those parts, and most likely you'd fix the problem. But today, if you are feeling a miss in your car, if there's a miss, if there's some sort of a hesitation, a lack of power, lack of fuel mileage, most likely by the time you feel that there's a problem, there's already been damage done to your car. So let's just say, for instance, you have a car that the spark plug has not been replaced in the car since you bought it. Now, a lot of new cars come with spark plugs that are iridium plugs. They're not a copper. Copper is a better conductor of electricity than the iridium from what I understand but it doesn't last as long now in some vehicles copper is still a good idea if you have a pickup truck with a Hemi engine 
they come with copper spark plug wires. Now, or uh, spark plugs, rather. Now, copper spark plugs are good spark plugs. There's nothing wrong with them. The reason why Hemi Dodge uses those in the Hemi engine, rather, is because the copper spark plugs wear out earlier than iridiums. So copper might last 30 or 40,000 miles. The iridiums might last 100,000 miles. The reason why Dodge used those copper spark plugs other than because they are a better conductor of electricity and therefore would be a better spark plug for the car, is that they don't want that spark plug sitting in that head. One thing about Hemi's that you might not know is the Dodge Hemi engine that they use in those pickup trucks uses two spark plugs per cylinder, just like a small aircraft engine. So you have a V8 has essentially 16 spark plugs. They don't want those spark plugs sitting in that head for a long period of time. I believe it's an aluminum head. So they want you to replace those spark plugs about every 30,000 miles. Now, most auto manufacturers don't want you changing the spark plugs that often. And the reason is, if you look at different vehicles, most likely you're going to choose to buy the car that has the least amount of upkeep and maintenance. So what they do is they go with a iridium spark plug that maybe might not work as well as the copper plug, but it's going to last two, two and a half times as long. So you see, they, there are always trade-offs with these things as to what you get. But let's jump back and let's say that you have a car that's missing, it's not running correctly. Well, what's happened is maybe, perhaps, you left your spark plugs in the car and you drove, we'll say, 130, 140,000 miles on the stock spark plugs. Now, if you're fortunate enough to pull those spark plugs out and check them without ruining the threads in the head, then you might see that those spark plugs are worn down pretty bad. They're worn pretty, pretty solidly through. Now, the problem that you can have is not just that the spark plugs need replaced, but we don't use spark plug wires on cars anymore. Just about every car uses what they call a coil pack. So whereas we used to have vehicles with a coil that had maybe six or four, six, or eight wires coming off of it. Now we have a coil pack that sits right on top of the spark plug. So you have a wire that plugs into the coil pack and that allows the coil pack to give the spark plug the power that it needs right when it needs it. This allows us to do a lot of things with timing, engine timing, ignition timing, things of that sort. Now, once you run spark plugs that are worn, what happens is you're taxing that coil pack. So let's say this coil pack has an off duty or a duty rather of, we'll say 5%. So that means that 5% of the time this ignition coil pack is producing a spark and the other 95% of the time it's resting, it's cooling down to dissipate the heat. Well, when this spark plug gets worn, now it takes more power to jump that gap. So invariably what's going to happen is the coil pack is going to engage the ignition longer. It's going to work harder to create a hotter spark, uh, a larger spark if you will, so that it can jump that gap. Now this can be even worse if you have a turboed car because with a turboed car you're packing more air in the cylinder and essentially by packing more air in the cylinder you're making that gap a harder gap to jump because there's a thicker atmosphere. So 
All this is to say now, if you run a car for a long period of time, that coil pack that might have needed 95% of the time to cool down might only be cooling down 30 or 40 or 50% of the time. It might be running half the time to try and uh, make the car run properly. And I say all that to say some of these coil packs can be very expensive and not only expensive, but sometimes hard to get to. On my car, that pack is right on top of the cylinder. It's very easy to get to. But I believe on the Ford Tauruses, you have to remove the intake manifold to get to those coil packs. So the reason why I said all of this is because when you have a car and you have an issue, it is far better and far cheaper to take that car to a good mechanic that you can trust and to get it diagnosed. If you want to fix the problem yourself, you can, but you're going to be far, far better off to take that car to someone who knows what they're doing and can diagnose it properly. I think a lot of people think that, you know, these car repair shops that they're out to just, they're just out to get you. They're not looking out for your best interest. And I'm sure just like everything else in life, there are good and there are bad uh, car mechanic shops. Not all dealerships are good. Not all, uh, you know, private shops are bad. In fact, I'd venture to say a lot of times you're going to be better off going to a private, small, uh, you know, mechanic that knows what they're doing. Somebody who is maybe they worked in a dealership and started their own shop. You know, check around with people and try and find a good shop. That's what you need to do. And if you do that, you're going to save money in the long run. I think a lot of times we say, well, the dealer is, they're factory trained. And I didn't know this. I just found this out about a year ago. But a dealership is nothing more than a, a car mechanic, a car shop that paid a franchise fee, essentially, to sell new cars. That's all it is. So we had a place in Fairmont called Leaser Auto. So Leaser, uh, Mr. Leaser, who I remember he build a car for our follies one year for the band he had a repair shop now if he wanted to he could have paid money and he might have been able to sell we'll say alfa romeos there he could have sold italian cars right there in fairmont you know it wouldn't have been all that difficult you just have to come up with the money and you know essentially go through the plan that they have for you so this has gone a little long i didn't really want to make it too long but to wrap this whole thing up, like I said, that advertisement said, this is what these car mechanics don't want you to know. And here's the point of this whole audio recording today. There is something that those car repair shops want you to know. They want you to know that they would rather you be in a good mood to be satisfied with the job that they did for you and to be repeat customers. That's what a good shop wants is good repeat customers. And if you go in telling them, hey, the car is making a noise, let the mechanic ride with you. You know, those of us who have older cars, mine's, like I said, a 2008. If I take my car to a shop, and I've done this before, I had a noise that I didn't like. I wanted to get rid of that noise. Well, I told the mechanic that I had a noise, and he heard a noise, and he fixed what he thought I was talking about. But I get the car back and I get to drive it and it's still doing exactly what I took it there for. And what I realized is from then on, and I took care of this the next time, 
from then on what I need to do is if I have a noise that I don't like I need to take the mechanic with me and say hey uh, here you drive and I'll tell you what I'm looking to fix and whenever he drives I can say that right there did you hear that noise that's what I want fixed he might hear a noise but there might be four or five noises that this car makes and you might be overlooking four of them you've just gotten used to it so we need to be very open with car mechanics don't get upset with them if they don't fix the problem that you told them about. You can't take a car in and say, I want a tune-up, and then get mad when you get the car back and it's still doing the thing that you don't want it to do, or not doing the thing you do want it to do. Instead of saying a tune-up, say the car doesn't have good power. It hes hesitates. Maybe it runs better when it's warm, but not when it's cold. All of these things will help a mechanic to do a better job for you to fix your vehicle. Like I said, I'm not a professional mechanic, but after seeing that ad, it kind of got me upset because this company is trying to sell a device that they're telling you is going to fix all of your problems, and honestly, it's not. Let me finish it all up with this. This Agco Auto that I'm telling you about, this podcast I really love listening to, and I want to thank them because they have given me so much knowledge about how cars work today. One of the things that they said was they unhooked a, I believe it was a brake booster hose, so a vacuum line. They created a vacuum leak in their vehicle, and they had two different vehicles. I believe it was a Toyota pickup truck and maybe a Chevy or Ford pickup truck. It was the same thing that they disconnected on both vehicles, but both vehicles had separate trouble uh, diagnostic codes, DTCs diagnostic trouble codes one of them said that there was we'll say it's a vacuum leak of some sort another one said that it was uh if i'm not mistaken it was something regarding like a some sort of uh check engine light for uh, uh i apologize i'm just trying to think off the top of my head we'll just say it was a mass airflow sensor warning or a too lean or too ricks uh, rich mixture warning so I say all that to say you need to know before you start looking at a car, you need to know this car told me it was this issue. So now I need to look and see what is reading high. Is it a temperature that's not reading correctly? Is it a voltage that's not reading correctly? Let me say, um, <laughs> I keep saying one more thing. It could possibly be your battery is dead. You know, a car battery at 8 volts can start a car. 8 volts is enough to crank that engine, but it might not be enough voltage for the computer to work properly. Computers in cars need to see about 12 volts to run properly. So you might have enough power as far as amps to crank that engine over, but you might not have the voltage for the computer to read properly. And if the computer cannot read the voltage properly, on your crank sensor or things of that sort, then if it doesn't see that crank sensor working, it's not going to add fuel, it's not going to, to uh, induce a voltage to the plugs, you're not going to have a car that starts. So, <laughs> that was a little longer than I expected, but I just wanted to kind of come on here and try and explain something out because there are a lot of intelligent people out there. And I also know though that there are a lot of people who Maybe they worked on cars back in the 70s and 80s, but those cars from back then have very little in common with the cars of today. 
they're much less mechanical today and much more computer electronics based and unless you know what you're doing and unless you know which troubleshooting steps to take as Louis Altazan says you're gonna run out of money before you run out of things to fix so if you have a problem figure out when the problems happening why you think it's happening and let the mechanic know everything that you can be as detailed as you can possibly be and if the car is doing something when it's cold don't take it to the mechanic shop and expect them to find it when it's warm they might have to let that car sit overnight to check it when the car is cold cold meaning that the coolant temperature is the same temperature as the ambient air that takes a long time to get to so you're gonna have to park the car overnight most likely to find that issue so anyway guys thanks for stopping by i hope you enjoyed this i hope you got something out of it if you did please drop me a contact uh get a hold of me give me a call send me a text i'd like to hear about it and if there's some topic you would like me to talk about especially with car maintenance i'd love to talk uh, about it a little bit more maybe get into a few different things so let me know what you think and uh, i appreciate it thanks for stopping by guys see you later